Hey, ¿qué pasó, gente? It's your boy Pelon, and you're tuned in to another episode of the Chicano Podcast, aka Chocast. Um, I'm your host, Steve Garcia, and this is being brought to you by Chocast. I'm going to go ahead and um, get started with yesterday or this weekend being the uh, 50th anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium. Um, Ruben Salazar, a journalist uh, from Los Angeles uh, Times, um, was killed by a shot to the head from the uh, L.A. Uh, Sheriff's County office um, from a projectile tear gas uh, projectile and uh, a little bit earlier than that they had uh, called Ruben Salazar on the phone and told him specifically to stop stirring up Mexicans Um, again this was back in 1970 this was a highly regarded activists uh, for the Chicano movement and if you're on any type of uh, social media like Facebook in any uh, Chicano groups or any uh, groups that would talk about like you know activism um, for Chicanos you would see Ruben Salazar um, as a big um, part of what happened uh, this weekend as far as like a um, tribute in kind of a way uh, because you know it's 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 been a long time and uh, you know he did so much um, as far as being a role model as far as exposing the truth and as far as being an instrumental uh, person for Chicanos. Um, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read an article today out of the Rolling Stone. Um, It's called Rumblings in Aslan. And or it's actually called Strange Rumblings in Aslan. And it was um, written regarding all this. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, start um, right now. The murder. Oh, and then after after uh, obviously after I read it, I'm going to go a little bit over um you know, the, the, the thought, um, that I have, uh, in particular. So again, strange rumblings in Aslan, the murder and resurrection of Ruben Salazar by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, savage polarization, in the making of a martyr, bad news for the Mexican American, worse news for the pig. And now the new Chicano Riding a grim new wave. The rise of the Batos Locos, brown power, and a fistful of reds, rude politics in the barrio, 
which side are you on, brother? There is no more middle ground, no place to hide on Whittier Boulevard, no refuge from the helicopters, no hope in the courts, no peace with the man, no leverage anywhere, and no light at the end of the tunnel, nada. Morning comes hard to the hotel, Ashman. This is not a place where the guests spring eagerly out of bed to greet the fresh new day, but on this particular morning, everybody in the place is awake. At the crack of dawn, there is a terrible pounding and shrieking in the hallway near room number 267. Some junkie has ripped the doorknob of the communal bathroom, and now the others can't get in, so they are trying to kick the door down. The voice of the manager wavers hysterically above the din. Come on now, fellas, do I have to call the sheriff? The reply comes hard and fast. You filthy gabacho pig. You call the fucking sheriff, and I'll cut your fucking throat. And now... The sound of wood cracking, more screaming, the sound of running feet outside my door, number 267. The door is locked in Christ, but now can you say for sure in place like the Hotel Ashman, especially on a morning like this with the mob of wild junkies locked out in the hall, bathroom, and maybe knowing that number 267 is the only room within Lunging distance that has a private bath. It is the best in the house at 580 a night. And that's $5.80 a night. And the lock on the door is brand new. The old one was ripped out 12 hours earlier, just before I checked in. The desk clerk had gone to a lot of trouble to get me into this room. His key wouldn't fit the lock jesus christ he kept muttering this key has to fit there's a brand new yale lock he stared balefully at the bright new key in his hand yeah i said but the key is for a webster lock but god you're right he exclaimed and he rushed off leaving us standing there in the hallway with big chunks of ice in our hand what's wrong with you guy i asked he seems out of control all this sweating and grappling and jabbering. Benny Luna laughed many. Or man, he's nervous. You think it's normal for him to be letting four nasty looking Chicanos into his best room at three in the morning with all us carrying chunks of ice and funny looking leather bags? He was staggering around the hall, convulsed with laughter. Man, this guy is freak. He doesn't know what's going on. Three Chicanos, said Oscar, and one hillbilly. You didn't tell him I was a writer, did you? I asked. I noticed Oscar talking to the man, a tall, sort of defeated-looking Germanic type, but I hadn't paid much attention. No, but he recognized me, Oscar replied. He said, you're the lawyer, aren't you? So I said, that's right. I want your best room for the gabacho friend of mine, he grinned. Yeah, he knows something's wrong with the scene, but he doesn't know what. These guys are scared of everything now. Every merchant on Whittier Boulevard is sure he's leaving 
on he's living on borrowed time. So they all go to pieces at the first sign of anything strange going on. It's been this way ever since Salazar. The room clerk, manager, keeper, etc. suddenly rounded the hallway corner with the right key and led us into the room. It was a winter, a rundown, echo of a place. I stayed in a few years ago in the slums of Lima, Peru. I can't recall the name of that place, but I remember that all the room keys were attached to a big wooden knob around about the size of grapefruits, too. Big to fit in a pocket. I thought about suggesting this to our man in the hotel, Ashman, but he didn't wait around for tips or small talk. He was gone in a flash, leaving us alone to deal with the quarter rum, and God only knows what else. We put the ice in a basin next to the bed and chopped it up with huge rigging knife. The only music was a tape cassette of Let It Bleed. What better music for a hot night on Whittier Boulevard in 1971? This has not been a peaceful street of late. And in truth, it was never a peaceful. Whittier is to the vast Chicano Barrio in East Los Angeles. What the Sunset Strip is to Hollywood. This is where the street action lives. The bars, the hustlers, the drug market, the whores, and also the riots, the trashings. Killings, gassings, the sporadic bloody clashes with the hated common enemy, the cops, the pigs, the man, that blue crested army of fearsome gabacho troops from the East L.A. Sheriff's Department. The Hotel Ashman is a good place to stay if you want to get next to whatever's happening on Whittier Boulevard. The window of number 267 is about 15 feet above the sidewalk and just a few blocks west of the Silver Dollar Cafe, a nondescript tavern that is not much different from any of the others nearby. There is a pool table in the rear, a pitcher of beer sells for a dollar, and a faded Chicano barmaid rolls dice with the patrons to keep the jukebox going. Low number pays, and nobody seems to care who selects the music. We had been in there earlier when not much was happening. It was my first visit in six months since early September when the place was still rancid with the stench of CS gas and fresh varnish. But now, six months later, the silver dollar had aired out nicely. No blood on the floor, no ominous holes in the ceiling. The only reminder of my other visit was a thing hanging over the cash register that we all noticed immediately. It was a black gas mask staring blindly out at the room, and below the gas mask was a stark hand-printed sign that said, In memory of August the 29th, 1970. Nothing else, no explanation. But no explanation was necessary, at least not to nobody likely to be found drinking in the silver dollar. The customs are locals, Chicanos and Barrio people, and every one of them is acutely aware of what happened in the Silver Dollar Cafe on August the 29th of 1970. That was the day that Ruben Salazar, the prominent Mexican-American columnist for the Los Angeles Times and news director for bilingual KMEX-TV, 
walked into the place and sat down on a stool bar near the doorway to order a beer he would never drink because just about the time the barmaid was sliding his beer across the bar, a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy named Tom Wilson fired a tear gas bomb through the front door and blew half of Ruben Salazar's head off. I'm going to say that again. They blew half of his head off. All the other customers escaped out the back exit to the alley, but Salazar never emerged. He died on the floor in a cloud of CS gas. And when his body was finally carried out hours later, his name was already launched into martyrdom. Within 24 hours, the very mention of the name Ruben Salazar was enough to provoke tears and fists, shaking tirades not only along Whittier Boulevard, but all of East L.A. Middle-aged housewives who had never thought of themselves as anything but lame status Mexican-Americans just trying to get by a mean gringo world. Oh, just trying to get by in a mean gringo world. They never made suddenly found themselves shouting Viva La Raza in public and their husbands quiet Safeway clerks and lawn care salesmen the lowest and most expendable gadres in the great Gabacho economic machine we're volunteering to testify, yes, to stand up in court or wherever and calling themselves Chicanos. The term Mexican-American felt fell massively out of favor with all but the old and conservative and the rich. It suddenly came to mean Uncle Tom. Or in the argument of East L.A., Tio Taco. The difference between a Mexican-American and a Chicano was the difference between a Negro and a Black. All of this has sudden, has happened very suddenly, too suddenly for most people. One of the basic laws of politics is that action moves away from the center. The middle of the road is only popular when nothing has happened and nothing serious has been happening politically in East L.A. for longer than most people can remember until six months ago the whole place was a colorful tomb a vast slum of noise and cheap labor a rifle shot away from the heart of downtown los angeles the barrio like watts is actually a part of the city core while places like hollywood and santa santa monica are separate entities the silver dollar cafe is a 10-minute drive from the city hall the sunset strip is a 30-minute sprint on the Hollywood freeway. Whittier Boulevard is a hell of a long way from Hollywood by any measure. There is no psychic connection at all. After a week in the bowels of East L.A., I felt vaguely guilty about walking into the bar in the Beverly Hills Hotel and ordering a drink as if I didn't quite belong there 
and the waiters all knew it. I had been there before under different circumstances and felt totally uncomfortable or almost there is no way to, well, to hell with that. The point is that this time I felt different. I was oriented to a completely different world 15 miles away. Marcha por la justicia. The march for justice. There are no police community relations in the Chicano communities. No ever since the police riot on August 29th. It has become too obvious to ignore the fact that the LAPD, the sheriffs, and the highway patrol have for years been systematically trying to destroy the true spirit of our people. In the past, police have broken up every attempt of our people to get justice. They have beaten young students, protesting poor education, raided offices, arresting arrested leaders, called us communists and gangsters in the press, and everything else on the streets. When the press was gone, even more insidious than the direct political rep repercussion against leaders and demonstrations is the continuous attacks on the everyday life of the people in the barrios. Almost every month, each barrio has suffered through at least one case of severe brutality or murder and then struggled to defend friends and witnesses who face bum raps. One week at San Fernando, then Lincoln Heights, East LA, Venice, the Harbor, and Pomona. They hit one body at a time trying to break our unity and our spirit. On August the 29th, through all of our bodies were demonstrations for peace and justice, and the police rioted and attacked out of fear. They installed martial law, arresting and abusing hundreds of community people. They killed Gilberto Diaz Lynn Ward and Ruben Salazar, the man who could tell us our story, the man who could tell our story to the nation and the world. We must not forget the lesson of August the 29th that the major social and political issue we face is police brutality. Since the 29th, police attacks have been worse. Either the people control the police or we are living in a police state we must allow the police to break we must not allow the police to break our unity we must carry on the spirit of ruben salazar and expose this brutality to the nation and the world the chicano moratorium committee calls upon you to support our non-violent march for justice throughout the barrios of the greater los angeles area Caravans will be coming from dozens of cities and around our barrios. We will all meet at the East L.A. Sheriff's substation on 3rd Street between Federley and Woods at 11 a.m. January 31, 1971. Join your local caravan for further information. Call 268-6745. This is a handbill from the National Chicano Moratorium Committee. And my first night in the Hotel Ashman was not restful. The others had left around five. Then there was the junkie eruption at seven, followed an hour later by a thundering 
low fidelity outburst of wailing Norteño music from the jukebox in the Boulevard Cafe across the street. And then about 9.30, I was jerked up again by a series of loud whistles from the sidewalk right under my window and a voice calling, Hunter, wake up, man. Let's get moving. Holy Jesus. I thought only three people in the world know where I am right now, and they're all asleep. Who else could have tracked me to this place? I bent the metal slats of the Venetian blind apart just to look down at the street and see Rudy Sanchez, Oscar's quiet little bodyguard, looking up at my window and waving urgently. Come on out, man. It's time. Oscar and Benny are up the street at the sweetheart. That's the bar on the corner where you see all those people in front. We'll wait for you, okay? You awake? Sure, I'm awake, I said. I've been sitting here waiting for you lazy criminal bastards. Why do Mexicans need so much fucking sleep? Rudy smiled and turned away. Well, we'll be waiting for you, man. We'll be waiting for you, man. We're going to be drinking the hell of... A lot of Bloody Marys, and you know the rule we have down here. Never mind that, I muttered. I need a shower. But my room had no shower, and somebody that night had managed to string a naked copper wire across the bathtub and plug it into a socket underneath the basin outside the bathroom door. For what reason? Demon rum, I had no idea. Here I was in the best room in the house, Looking for a shower and finding only an electrified bathtub and no place to righteously shave. In the best hotel on the strip, finally I scrubbed my face with a hot towel and went across the street to the sweetheart lounge. Oscar Acosta, Chicano lawyer, was there leaning on the bar, talking idly with some of the patrons of the four people around him. All in their late 20s, two were ex-cons, two were part-time dynamite freaks, and known firebombers, and three of the four were veteran acid eaters. Yes, yet none of this surfaced in the conversation. The talk was political, but only... In terms of the courtroom, Oscar was dealing with two hyper political trials at the same time. In one, the trial of the Biltmore Six, he was defending six young Chicanos who had been arrested for trying to burn down the Biltmore Hotel. One night about a year ago, while Governor Ronald Reagan was delivering a speech there in the ballroom, their guilt or innocence was immaterial at this point because the trial had developed into a specular a spectacular attempt to overturn the entire grand jury selection system in the preceding months Acosta had subpoenaed every superior judge in the Los Angeles County and cross-examined all 109 of them at length under oath 
on the subject of their racism. It was a wretched affront to the whole court system, and Acosta was working overtime to make it as wretched as possible. Here were the here were these hundred and nine old men, these judges compelled to take time from whatever they were doing and go into another courtroom to take the stand and deny charges of racism from an attorney they all loathed. Oscar's contention throughout was that all grand juries are racist. Since all grand juries have to be recommended by superior court judges who naturally tend to recommend people they know personally or professionally and that therefore no rat bastard Chicano street crazy, for instance, could possibly be indicted by a jury of his peers. The implications of a victory in this case were so obvious, so clearly menacing to the court system that interest in the verdict had filtered all the way down to places like the Boulevard, the Silver Dollar, and Sweetheart. The level of political consciousness is not normally high in these places, especially on Saturday mornings. But Acosta's very presence, no matter where he goes or what he seems to be doing, is so grossly political that anybody who wants to talk to him has to figure out some way to deal on a meaningful political level. The thing is to never talk down, he says. We're not trying to win votes out here. Hell, that trip's been done. It's over. The idea now is to make people think, for them to think. And you can't do that by walking around slapping strangers on the back and buying them beers, then grinning. Unless you happen to be babbling drunk or stoned, which is certainly not my style. I want to make that one thing very clear. But today, the talk was easy. With no ulterior politics, say Oscar. Somebody asked, how do we stand on the grand jury thing? What's our chances? Acosta shrugged. We'll win. Maybe not on this level, but we'll win on the appeal. That's good, man. I hear you're really working out on the bastards. Yeah, we're fucking them over. But that one might take another year. Right now, we have to think about Corky's trial. It starts Tuesday. Corky's in town? The interest is obvious. Heads turn to listen. Rudy eases back a few feet so he can watch the whole bar, scanning the faces for any that might be too interested. Paranoia is rampant in the barrio. Informers, narcs, assassins, who knows? And Rudolfo Corky Gonzalez is a definite heavy prime target for a frame or a setup. A scholarly, soft-spoken ex-boxer, his Denver-based crusade for justice is one of the few viable Chicano political organizations in the country. Gonzalez is a poet, a street fighter, a theorist, an organizer, and most influential Chicano leader in the country next to Cesar Chavez.
Whenever Corky Gonzalez appears in East LA, if only to stand trial on a misdemeanor weapons bust, the level of political tension rises noticeably. Gonzalez has a very intense following in the barrios. Most of his supporters are young students, dropouts, artists, poets, crazies, the people who respect Cesar Chavez, but who can't really relate to church-going farm workers. This weekend is going to be hell. Oscar had told me the night before, whenever Corky's in town, my apartment turns into a fucking zoo. I have to go to a motel to get any sleep. Shit, I can't stay up all night arguing radical politics when I have to be in court the next morning. These wild-eyed fuckers show up at all hours. They bring wine, joints, acid, mescaline, guns. Jesus. Corky wouldn't dare take that kind of risk. He's already here. But I don't know where he's staying. He's checked into some kind of goddamn Holiday Inn or something. About five miles out on Rosemead. But he won't tell anybody where it is. Not even me, his lawyer. He smiled. And that's pretty shrewd. Because if I knew where he was, I might go over there some night all twisted and crazy about calling a general strike at dawn or some other dangerous bullshit that would freak him. He nodded, smiling lazily down at his drink. As a matter of fact, I have been thinking about calling a general strike. The movement is so goddamn splintered right now that almost anything would help. Yeah, maybe I should write Corky a speech along those lines, then call a press conference for tomorrow afternoon in the Silver Dollar. He laughed bitterly and called for another Bloody Mary. Acosta had been practicing law in the body for three years. I met him a bit earlier than that in another era, which hardly matters here, except that it might be a trifle less than fair to run this story all the way out to the end without saying at least once for the record that Oscar is an old friend and occasional antagonist. I first met him, as I recall, in the bar the Daisy Duck in Aspen. Then he lumbered up to me and started raving about ripping the system apart like a pile of cheap hay or something like that. And I remember thinking, well, here's another one of those fucked up guilt crazed dropout lawyers from San Francisco, some dingbat who ate one too many tacos and decided he was really Emiliano Zapata, which was okay, I felt, but it was a hard act to handle in Aspen in that high white summer of 1967 that was the era of Sergeant Pepper, the surrealistic pillow, and the original Buffalo Springfield. It was a good year for everybody, or for most people anyways. There were exceptions as always. Lyndon Johnson was one, and Oscar Acosta was another. For entirely different reasons, that was not a good summer to be either the President of the United States or an angry Mexican lawyer in Aspen. Oscar 
didn't hang around long. He washed dishes for a while, did a bit of construction work, bent the county jail or bent the county judge out of shape a few times and took off for Mexico to get serious. The next thing I heard, he was working for the public defender's office in L.A. That was sometimes around Christmas in 1968, which was not a good year for anybody except Richard Nixon and perhaps Oscar Acosta because at that time, by that time, Oscar was beginning to find his own track. He was America's only Chicano lawyer. He explained in a letter, and he liked it. His clients were all Chicanos, and most were political criminals, he said. And if they were guilty, it was only because they were doing what had to be done. That's fine, I said, but I couldn't really get into it. I was all for it. You understand? But only on the basis of a personal friendship. Most of my friends are into strange things. I don't totally understand. And with a few shameful exceptions, I wish them all well. Who am I? I, after all, to tell some friend he shouldn't change his name to Oliver High, get rid of his family, and join a satanic satanism cult in seattle or to argue with another friend who wants to buy a single shot remington fireball so he can go out and shoot cops from a safe distance question mark whatever's right i say never fuck with the friend's head by accident and if their private trips get out of control now and then well you do what has to be done, which more or less explains how I suddenly found myself involved in the murder of Ruben Salazar. I was put up. I was up in Portland, Oregon at the time trying to cover the National American Legion Convention at the Sky River Rock Festival at the same time. And I came back to my secret room in the Hilton one night to find an urgent message to call Mr. Acosta in Los Angeles, and I wondered how he had managed to track me down in Portland, but I knew somehow that what he was calling about. I had seen the LA Times that morning, the story of Salazar's death, death. and even at a distance of 2,000 miles, it gave off a powerful stench. The problem was not just a gimp or a hole in the story. The whole goddamn thing was wrong. It made no sense at all. The Salazar case had a very special hook in it. Not that he was a Mexican or Chicano and not even Acosta's angry insistence that the cops had killed him in cold blood and that nobody was going to do anything about it. These were all proper ingredients for an outrage. But from my point of view, the most ominous aspect of Oscar's story was his charge that the police had deliberately gone out on the streets and killed a reporter who'd been giving them trouble if this was true it meant the ante was being up drastically when the cops declare open season on journalists when they feel free to declare any scene of unlawful press protest a free fire zone that would be a very ugly day and not just for journalists for 13 devastated blocks darkened stores stood gaping showed windows smashed 
traffic signs spent shotgun shells. Chunks of brick and concrete littered the pavement. A pair of sofas gutted by fire smoldered at a curbside splashed with blood in the hot blaze of hot of police fires. Three Chicano youths swaggered down the ruined street. Hey, brother, one yelled to a black reporter. Was this better than Watts? That was an excerpt from Newsweek, February 15th of 1971. Ruben Salazar is a bona fide martyr now. Not only in East LA, but in Denver and Santa Fe and San Antonio, throughout the Southwest, the length and breadth of Aslan, the conquered territories that came under the yoke of gringo occupation troops more than 100 years ago. When vendido politicians in Mexico City sold out to the U.S. in order to call off the invasion that gringo history books refer to as the American War, Davy Crockett, Remember the Alamo, etc. As a result of this war, the U.S. government was ceded about half of what was then the Mexican nation. The territory was eventually broken up into what is now the states of Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and southern half of California. This is Aslan, more a concept than a real definition, but even as a concept, it has galvanized a whole generation of young Chicanos to a style of political action that literally terrifies the Mexican-American parents. Between 1968 and 1970, the Mexican-American movement went through the same drastic changes and heavy trauma that had earlier afflicted the the Negro civil rights movement. In the early 60s, the split had mainly along generational lines and the first young radicals were overwhelmingly the sons and daughters of the middle class Mexican Americans who had learned to live with their problem. At this stage, the movement was basically intellectual. The word Chicano was forged as a necess necessary identity for the people of Aslan, neither Mexicans nor Americans, but a conquered Indian slash mestizo nation sold out by slaves, by its leaders, and treated like indentured servants by its conquerors. Not even their language was definable, much less their identity. The language of East L.A., is a speedy sort of cholo mixture of Mexican Spanish and California English. You can sit in the Boulevard Cafe on Whittier on a Saturday morning and hear a young Chicano ex-con explaining to his friend, this goddamn Gabacho parole officer tells me I have to get the sewing machine back. I talked to that goddamn vendido and the uh, vieja también, and they tell me, don't worry. We won't say nothing that would send you back to the joint. But the gobacho keeps pushing me. What can I do? And then suddenly noticing a vagrant gringo nearby, he finishes the whole story in rapid, very angry Spanish. There are a lot of ex-cons in the movement now, along with a whole new element, the Batos Locos. 
And the only difference really is the ex-cons are old enough to have done time for the same things the Vatos Locos haven't been arrested for yet. Another difference is that the ex-cons are old enough to frequent the action bars along Whittier. While most of the Vatos Locos are still teenagers, they drink heavily, but not in the Boulevard or the Silver Dollar on Friday night, you will find them sharing quarts of sweet key largo in the darkness of some playground in the housing project. And along with the wine, they eat sicono, which is massively available in the barrio and also cheap, a buck or so for a rack of five reds, enough to fuck anybody up. Sicono is one of the few drugs on the market, legal or otherwise, that is flat guaranteed to turn you mean especially with the wine on the side and a few white few whites bennies for a chaser this is the kind of diet that makes a man want to go out and stomp people the only other people I've seen ever or the only other people I've seen heavily into the red white wine diet were the hell's angels The results are about the same. The angels would get loaded and then snarl around looking for somebody to chain whip. The Vatos locals get loaded and start looking for their own kind of action. Burning the store, rat packing, uh, N-I-G-G-E-R, or stealing some cars for a night of high speed cruising on the freeway the action is almost always illegal usually violent but only recently has it become political perhaps the main movement focus in the barrio these days is the politicalization of the vatos locals the term translates literally as crazy guys but in harsh political terms it translates as street crazies. Teenage wild men who have nothing to lose except their hostility and a vast sense of doom and boredom with the world as they know it. These guys aren't afraid of the pigs. A Chicano activist told me, hell, they like a fight with the pigs. They want it. And there's a hell of a lot of them, man. Maybe 200,000. If we can organize these guys, man, we can move on any day. But the Vatos locals are not easily organized. For one thing, they're hopelessly ignorant about politics. They hate politicians, even Chicano politicians. They are also very young, very hostile. And when you get them excited, they're likely to do almost anything, especially when they're full of wine and Reds on the first overt attempts to bring the Vatos Locos into the new Chicano politics was the mass rally against police brutality last just January 31st. And the organizers looked, took great care to make sure the thing would be peaceful. The word went out all over the barrio with that this one has to be cool, no riot, no violence, a truce was arranged in East L.A. Sheriff's Department. The cops agreed to keep a low profile, but 
They nonetheless sandbagged and barricaded the sheriff's substation right next to the site of the rally in Belvedere Park, riding the nation, riding in the nation. A Chicago priest named David F. Gomez described the scene as the rally gathered steam despite the tension. A fiesta atmosphere prevailed as Chicano sat on the scarred grass of the park soccer field and listened while barrio speakers aired grievances over the police brutality and the gringo occupation of Aslan. Oscar Acosta gave the most rousing talk of the afternoon. Ya es tiempo. The time is now. There is only one issue not police abuse we are going to be clubbed over the head for as long as we live because we are chicanos And, um, the real issue is nuestra tierra, our land. Some people call us rebels and revolutionaries. Don't believe it. Emiliano Zapata was a revolutionary because he fought against other Mexicans, but we're not fighting our own people. But gringos, we are not trying to overturn our own government. We don't have a government. Do you think there would be police helicopters patrolling our communities day and night if anybody considered us real citizens with rights? The rally was peaceful all the way to the end. But then when fighting broke out between a handful of Chicanos, and jittery cops, nearly a thousand young Vatos locals reacted by making a frontal assault on the cop headquarters with rocks, bottles, clubs, bricks, and everything else they could find. The cops withstood the attack for about an hour, then swarmed out of the place with a stunning show of force that included firing deadly buckshot balls out of a 12-gauge shotgun straight into the crowd. The attackers fled through the back streets of Whittier Boulevard and thrashed the street again. The cops pursued firing shotguns and pistols at the point-blank range. After two hours of street warfare, the toll was one dead, 30 serious injuries, and a little less than half a million dollars worth of damage, including 78 burned and battered police cars. The entire L.A. power structure was outraged and the Chicano Moratorium committal, Committee was aghast. The rally's main organizer, 24-year-old Rosalio Munoz, a form, former president of the UCLA student body, was so, was so shocked by the outburst that he reluctantly agreed with the sheriff that any further mass rallies would be too dangerous. 
We will have to find a new way of expressing grievances, said a spokesperson for the more moderate Congress of Mexican-American unity from now on. The chorus will be to play a low profile, but nobody spoke for the Vatos Locos except maybe the sheriff. The violence was not caused by outsiders, he said, but by members of the Chicano community. They can't say we were provoked. We They can't say we provoked them this time. This was a definite switch from the standard brand cop analysis of Mexican violence in the past. They had always blamed it on community and outside agitators. But now it seemed the sheriff was finally catching on. The real enemy was the same people his men had to deal with every goddamn day of the week in all kinds of routine situations, on street corners and bars, domestic brawls and car accidents, the gente, the street people, the ones who lived there. So in the end, being a sheriff's deputy in East L.A. was not much different from being a point man for the American division in Vietnam. Vietnam. Even the kids and old women are VC. This is the new drift. And everybody in East LA who who is willing to talk about it uses the term since Salazar in the six months since the murder and the unsettling coroner's, coroner's inquest that followed it up. The Chicano community has been harshly Sundered by a completely new kind of polarization, another painful amoeba trip. But the split this time was not between the young militants and the old Teotacos. This time it was between student-type militants and this whole new breed of super-militant street crazies. The arguments was no longer whether to fight, but when and how and with what weapons. Another awkward aspect of the new split was that it was no longer a simple matter of the generation gap what had which had been painful but essentially simple now it was more than a conflict of lifestyles and attitudes and division this time it was more along economic or class lines and this was painfully complex. The original student activists had been militant, but also reasonable in their own eyes, if not in the eyes of the law. But the Vatos locals never even pretended to be reasonable. They wanted to get it on, and sooner the better. Anytime, anywhere, just give us a reason to work out on the pig, and we're ready. This attitude created definite problems within the movement. The street people had right had right instincts, said the leadership, but they were not wise. They had no program, only violence and vengeance, which was wholly understandable, of course, but how could it work? How could the traditionally stable Mexican-American community gain anything in the long run by declaring total war on the gabacho power structure and meanwhile purging its own native vendidos. Aslan, love it or leave it. This is a sign at the Chicano rally. Ruben Salazar was killed in the wake of the Watts-styled riot that erupted when hundreds of cops attacked a peaceful 
rally in the Laguna Park where 5,000 or so liberal student activist type Chicanos had gathered to protest the drafting of Aslan citizens to fight for the U.S. Vietnam. Uh, the police suddenly appeared in Laguna Park with no warning and dispersed the crowd with a blanket of tear gas followed up by Chicago style mop up with billy clubs. The crowd fled in panic and anger and flaming hundreds of young spectators who ran the few blocks of Whittier Boulevard and began trashing every store in sight. Several buildings were burned to the ground, damaged with several buildings. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to end uh, right there because this Aslan Love It or Leave It is probably like a midpoint of this article. And um, just so a lot of people don't know, this article is by a guy named Hunter S. Thompson. Um, and I'm pretty sure he worked uh, for a uh, magazine. I'm not sure which one, but I was told that it was the um, Rolling Stone. Um, but, you know, he is uh, he is the author. Um, and I don't know what magazine he actually wrote this uh, for. But um, that where I stopped right there is probably like a midpoint. Uh, we're already almost into an hour of, um, reading into this article. Um, and I just want to go ahead and make sure that I cut this up into a few pieces. That way we can actually, uh, talk about it. Um, in the last episode, because I think that it's probably going to be three episodes, um, all rolled up into one, uh, just to make it easy. So I'm going to stop right there and I'm going to pick up on part two and then part three, because we're already almost right at 55 minutes. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and tune out, grab some lunch, and then I'll be on the next episode. So. Um, I'm going to go ahead and sign out right now. And if I didn't make that clear, what I'm doing is I'm making this a three part episode, a part one, a part two, a part three. I just got through reading from part one. Part two is going to be roughly about another hour. And then part three is going to be like the very end or just the discussion on the whole article. Um, so this is going to be probably somewhere between two and a half to three hours complete uh, for this uh, particular long article that was written by Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, but like I said, this is just the first part. It's going to move into a second part. And a third part, I don't know how some of the podcasters um, are playing it, if they play through all of them as one piece, but I'm going to actually have it divided if you're looking at Spotify um, or if you're going through Anchor, um, anybody else might do it as just one long piece, uh, but it should be somewhere between two and a half and three hours, if not. Uh, you should probably just go to uh, Anchor and Spotify and just look at how uh, their format 
formatting is different from anybody else, uh, just so you get the full uh, context of the entire article, uh, because we're only about 40 to 45 percent into the whole article. So it's got about another hour and a half to two hours of content. So I'm going to go ahead and um, stop here, grab some lunch, like I said, and then I'll be back on part two. Thank you. All right, what's up, everybody? It's uh, Steve Garcia. You're tuned into the Chicano Podcast, a.k.a. Chocast. And I'm your host, Steve Garcia. This is being brought to you by Chicano. And I'm doing a three-part special. I'll just call it an exclusive uh, for... Or in memory of Ruben Salazar and the 50th anniversary of his death. He has been basically immortalized as a Chicano martyr, if you will, for the movement. And for the activism, the journalism, um, you can do the research on the Chicano movement. But back in 1970, on this particular weekend, uh, we had the uh, 50th anniversary, and this is when he was killed in a... um, It was basically by the L.A. Sheriff's Department. Um, You know, they walked in, they hit him with a... They they basically blew half of his head off, uh, what I read here. Uh, This is the second part of a... um, Article that was written by Hunter S. Thompson. And um, I'm not sure exactly how many places it was printed, but it may have been printed in more than one. Uh, because I'm actually, I had found this online from a, um, a person that just told me to look it up and, um, it's in a book. Um, but I think that it, it went out to a lot of different magazines and a lot of different, um, I mean, he was part of, uh, the Los Angeles times and another, uh, news place called KMEX, uh, which is more like TV back in 19... 19- uh, 70. Uh, so I think this article might have came out in 1971. But anyways, I'm going to go ahead and start where I left off. And this is basically the second part. It starts out, Aslan, love it or leave it. Sign at the Chicano rally. So... Ruben Salazar was killed in the wake of a white-style riot that erupted when hundreds of cops attacked a peaceful rally in Laguna Park where 5,000 or so liberal student activist-type Chicanos had gathered to protest a drafting of Aslan citizens to fight for the U.S. and Vietnam. The police suddenly 
appeared in Laguna Park with no warning and dispersed the crowd with a blanket of tear gas, followed up by a Chicago-style mop-up with Billy Clubs. Billy Clubs. The crowd fled in panic and anger, inflaming hundreds of young spectators who ran the few blocks to Whittier Boulevard and began trashing every store in sight. Several buildings were burned to the ground. Damage was estimated at somewhere around a million dollars back then. Three people were killed, 60 were injured, but the central incident of that August 29th, 1970 rally was the killing of Ruben Salazar. And six months later, when the National Chicano Moratorium Committee felt it was time for another mass rally, they called it to carry on the spirit of Ruben Salazar. This is irony in this because Salazar was nobody's militant. He was a professional journalism journalist with 10 years of experience on a variety of assignments for the neoliberal Los Angeles Times. He was a nationally known reporter winning prizes for his work in places like Vietnam, Mexico City, and the Dominican Republic. Ruben Salazar was a veteran war correspondent, but he had never shed blood under fire. He was good and he seemed to like the work, so he must have been slightly bored when the Times called him back from the war zones for a raise and a well-deserved rest covering local affairs. He focused on the huge barrio just east of the city hall, and this was a scene he had never really known despite his Mexican-American heritage, but he locked into it almost instantly. Within months, he had narrowed his work for the Times down to a once-a-week column for the newspaper and signed on as a news director for KMX TV, the Mexican-American station, which he quickly transformed into an energetic, aggressively political voice for the whole Chicano community. His coverage of police activities made the East Los Angeles Sheriff's Department so happy that they soon found themselves in a sort of running private argument with this man, Salazar. This spick who refused to be reasonable. When Salazar got onto a routine story like some worthless kid named Ramirez getting beaten to death in a jail fight, he was likely to come up with almost anything, including a series of hard-hitting news commentary strongly suggesting that the victim had been beaten to death by the jailers. In the summer of 1970, Ruben Salazar was warned three times by the cops to tone down his covering his coverage, and each time he told them to fuck off. This was not common knowledge in the community until after he was murdered, and when he went out to cover the rally that August afternoon, he was still a Mexican-American journalist, but by the time his body was carried out of the silver dollar, he was a stone Chicano martyr. Salazar, who have been, who would have smiled at this irony, but he would have seen much humor in the way the story of his death was handled by the cops and the politicians, nor would he have been pleased to know that almost immediately after his death, his name would become a battle cry, prodding thousands of young Chicanos who had always 
disdain protest into an undeclared war with the hated gringo police. His paper, the LA Times, carried the account of its former foreign correspondent's death on its Monday front page. Mexican-American newsman Ruben Salazar was killed by a bullet-like tear gas shell fired by a sheriff's deputy into a bar during rioting Saturday East in Los Angeles, East, East L.A., the details were hazy, but the new hastily revised police version was clearly constructed to show that Salazar was the victim of a regrettable accident, which the cops were not aware of until many hours later. Sheriff's deputies had cornered an armed man in a bar, they said, and when he refused to come out, even after loud warnings with a bullhorn to evacuate, the tear gas shells were fired and several persons ran out. The back door at the time, according to the sheriff's nervous mouthpiece, Lieutenant Norman Hamilton, a woman and two men, one carrying a 7.65 automatic pistol, were met by deputies who questioned them. I don't know whether the man with a gun was arrested on a weapons violation or not. Hamilton added, Ruben Salazar was not among those persons who ran out the back door. He was lying on the floor inside with a huge hole in his head. But the police didn't know this, Lieutenant Hamilton explained, because they didn't enter the bar until approximately 8 p.m. when rumors began circulating that Salazar was missing and an unidentified man across the street from the bar told a deputy, I think there's an injured man in there. At this point, said Hamilton, Deputies knocked down the door and found the body. Two and a half hours later at 10.40 p.m., the sheriff's office admitted that the body was Ruben Salazar. Hamilton could not explain, said the Times, why two accounts of the incident given to the Times by avowed eyewitnesses differed from the sheriff's accounts. For about 24 hours, Hamilton clung grimly to his original story, a composite, he said. A first-hand police accounts, according to this version, Ruben Salazar had been killed by urgent gunfire during the height of a sweep of more than 7,000 people in Laguna Park when police ordered everyone to disperse. Local TV and radio newscasts offered a sporadic variations on this theme, citing Reports still under investigation that Salazar had been shot accidentally by careless street snipers. It was a tra it was tragic, of course, but tragedies like this are inevitable when crowds of innocent people allow themselves to be manipulated by a handful of violent cop-hating anarchists. By late Sunday, however, the sheriff's story had collapsed completely in the face of sworn testimony from four men who were standing within. 10 feet of Ruben Salazar when he died in the Silver Dollar Cafe at 4045 Whittier Boulevard, at least a mile from Laguna Park. But the real shocker came when these men testified that Salazar had been killed not by snipers or urgent gunfire, but by a cop with a deadly tear gas bazooka. Acosta had no trouble explaining the discrepancy 
They're lying, he said. They murdered Salazar, and now they're trying to cover it up. <clears throat> the sheriff already panicked. All he can say is no comment. He's ordered every cop in the county to say nothing to anybody, especially the press. They've turned the East L.A. Sheriff's Station into a fortress. Armed guards all around it. He laughed. Shit, the place looks like a prison, but with all the cops inside. Sheriff Peter J. Pitches refused to talk to me when I called the rude aftermath of the Salasada killing had apparently unhinged him completely. On Monday, he called off a scheduled press conference and instead issued a statement saying there are just too many conflicting stories, some from our own officers as to what happened, and the sheriffs want a, an opportunity to digest them before meeting with the newsmen. Indeed, Sheriff Pitches was not alone in his ability to digest the garbled swill that his office was doling out. The official version of the Salazar killing was so crude and illogical, even after revisions, that not even the sheriff seemed surprised when it began to fall apart, even before Chicano partisans had a chance to attack it, which they would, of course. The sheriff had already got wind of what was coming. Many eyewitnesses sworn statements, first-hand accounts, all of them hostile. The history of Chicano complaints against cops in East L.A. is not a happy one. The cops never lose, Acosta told me. And they won't lose this one either. They just murdered the only guy in the community they were really afraid of. And I guarantee you no cop will ever stand trial for it. Not even for manslaughter. I could accept that, but it was difficult even for me to believe that the cops had killed him deliberately. But I knew they were capable of it. But I was not quite ready to believe they had actually done it. Because once I believed that, I also had to accept the idea that they are prepared to kill anybody that seemed to be annoying to them, even me. As for Acosta's charge of murder, I knew him well enough to understand how he could make that charge publicly. I also knew him well enough to be sure he wouldn't try to hang that kind of monstrous bullshit on me. So our phone talk naturally disturbed me, and I fell to brooding about it, hung on my own dark suspicious suspicions. That Oscar had told me the truth. On the plane to L.A., I tried to make some kind of a case, either pro or con. From my bundle of notes and news clips relating to Salazar's death, by the time at least six reportedly reliable witnesses had made sworn statements that differed drastically on several crucial points with the original police version, which nobody believed anyway. There are there are there was something very disturbing about the sheriff's account on that incident. It wasn't even a good lie. Within hours after the Times hit the streets with the news that Ruben Salazar had in fact been killed by cops rather than street snipers, the sheriffs unleashed a furious assault on known on known dissidents who had flocked into East Los Angeles that weekend, he said, to provoke a disastrous riot in the Mexican-American community. He praised his deputies for the skill for zeal they displayed in restoring order to the area within two and a half hours, thus averting a much, thus averting a major holocaust of much greater proportions. 
Pitches did not identify any known dissidents, but he insisted that they had committed hundreds of provocative acts. For some reason, the sheriff failed to mention that his deputies had already jailed one of the most prominent Chicano militants in the nation. Corky Gonzalez had been arrested during Saturday's riot on a variety of charges that the police never really explained. Gonzalez fleeing the combat zone on a flatbed truck with 28 others was arrested first for a traffic violation, then on a concealed weapons charge, and finally for suspicion of robbery. When police found $300 in his pocket, police inspector John Kissing said that it was a routine booking. Anytime we stop a traffic case and find that there is a weapon in the car and that its occupants have a sizable amount of money, he said, we always book them for suspicion of robbery. Gonzalez ridiculous or Gonzalez ridiculed the charge saying anytime a Mexican is found with more than a hundred bucks, he's charged with a felony. The police had originally claimed he was carrying a loaded pistol and more than a thousand rounds of ammunition along with many spent cartridges. But by Wednesday, all felony charges had been dropped. As for robbery, Gonzalez said only a lunatic or a fool could believe that 29 people would rob a place and then jump on a flatbed truck to make their getaway. He had climbed aboard the truck with his two children, he said, to get them away from the cops who were gassing the rally to which he'd been invited as one of the main speakers. The $300, he said, was expense money for himself and his children for meals in L.A. and three-round trip bus tickets from Denver to L.A., that was the extent of Corky Gonzalez's involvement in the Salazar incident. And at a glance, it seems hardly worth mentioning, except for a rumor on the Los Angeles lawyer's grapevine that the robbery charge was only a ruse, a necessary holding action to set Gonzalez up for Chicano 7. Conspiracy bus charging that he came from Denver to Los Angeles with the intention of causing a riot. Both Sheriff Pitches and Los Angeles Police Chief Edward Davis were quick to seize on this theory. It was a perfect tool <laughs> for this problem. Not only would it frighten the local Chicanos and hamstring nationally known militants like Gonzalez, but it could also be used to create a sort of red menace smokescreen to obscure the nasty realities of the Ruben Salazar killing. The sheriffs fired the first salvo, which earned him a giant banner headline in Tuesday's L.A. Times and a heavy pro-police editorial in Wednesday's Herald Examiner. Meanwhile, Chief Davis launched a second blast from his listening post in Portland where he had gone to vent his wisdom at the American Legion convention. Davis blamed all the violence this that, that Saturday on a hardcore group of subversives who infiltrated the anti-war rally and turned it into a mob which soon ran wild in a frenzy of burning and looting. Ten months ago, 
He explained the Communist Party in California said it was giving up on the blacks to concentrate on the Mexican-Americans. Nowhere in the Herald editorial and nowhere in either statement by the sheriff and the police chief was there any mention of the name Ruben Salazar. The Herald, in fact, had been trying to ignore the Salazar story from the very beginning, even in Sunday's first story on the riot, long before any complications developed. The classic Hearst mentality was evident in the paper's full-page headline, East Los Angeles Peace Rally Explodes in Bloody Violence, Man Shot to Death, Building Looted, Burn, Salazar's name appeared briefly in a statement by spoken by spokesman for the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, a calm and confident assertion that the veteran supporter had been shot in Laguna Park by persons unknown in the midst of a bloody clash between police and militants. So much for Ruben Salazar and so much for the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, a genuinely rotten newspaper that claims the largest circulation of any afternoon daily in America. As one of the few remaining Hearst organs, it served a perverted purpose in its role as a monument to everything cheap, corrupt, and vicious in the realm of journalistic possibility. It is hard to understand, in fact, how the shriveled Hearst management can still find enough Gimps, bigots, and deranged pappists to staff a rotten paper like the Herald. But they manage somehow, and they also manage to sell a lot of advertising in the monster, which means the thing is actually being read and perhaps taken seriously by hundreds of thousands of people in America's second largest city. At the top of Wednesday's editorial page, Right next to the Red Menace warning was a large cartoon entitled At the Bottom of It All. It showed a flaming Molotov cocktail crashing through a window and at the bottom, bottom, get it, of the bottle is a hammer and sickle emblem. The editorial itself was a faithful echo of the Davis Pitches charges many of the dissidents came here from other cities and states to join agitators in los angeles to set off a major riot which was planned in advance that the holocaust did not erupt into greater proportions is due to the bravery and tactics of the sheriff's deputies those arrested should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law precautions must be doubled to prevent a recurrence of such criminal irresponsibility. The continued existence of the Hearst Examiner explains a lot about the mentality of Los Angeles and also perhaps about the murder of Ruben Salazar. So the only way to go was a to reconstruct the whole thing on the basis of available eyewitness testimony, the police refused to say anything at all, especially to the press. The sheriff said he was saving the truth for the official 
coroner's inquest. Meanwhile, evidence was building up that Ruben Salazar had been murdered either deliberately or for no reason at all. The most damaging anti-cop testimony thus far had come from Guillermo Restrepo, a 28-year-old reporter and newscaster for KMX TV who was recovering or who was covering the riot with Salazar that afternoon and who had gone with him into the Silver Dollar Cafe to take a leak and a drink, a quick beer before he went back to the station to put the story together. The Strepo's testimony was solid enough on its own to cast a filthy shadow on the original police version. But when he produced two more eyewitnesses who told exactly the same story, the sheriff abandoned all hope and sent his scriptwriters back to the sty. Guillermo Restrepo is well known in East LA, a familiar figure to every Chicano who owns a TV set. And Restrepo is the out front public face of KMX TV news. And Ruben Salazar, until August 29, 1970, was the behind the news, the editor. <clears throat> they worked well together. And on that Saturday, when the Chicano Peace Rally turned into a white style street riot, both Salazar and Restrepo decided that it might be wise if Restrepo, a native Colombian, brought two of his friends, also Colombians, to help out as spotters and de facto bodyguards. Their names were Gustavo Garcia, age 30, and Hector Fabio Franco, also 30. Both men appear in a photograph taken seconds before Salazar was killed of a sheriff's the deputy pointing a shotgun at the front door of the Silver Dollar Cafe. Garcia is the man right in front of the gun. When the picture was taken, he had just asked the cop what was going on, and the cop had just told him to get back inside the bar if he didn't want to be shot. In the sheriff's office, was not aware of this photo until three days after it was taken, along with a dozen others by two more eyewitnesses who also happened to be editors of La Raza, a militant Chicano newspaper that calls itself the voice of the East L.A. Barrio. Actually, it is one of several. The, Ser the Brown Berets published a monthly tabloid called La Causa, The National La Raza Law Students Association has its own monthly Justicia O. The Socialist Workers Party covers the barrio with the militant and East L.A. welfare rights organization has its own tabloid. La Causa de los Pobres. There is also Gonzafos, a quarterly review of Chicano art and literature. The photographs were taken by Raul Ruiz, a 28-year-old teacher of Latin American studies at San Fernando Valley State College. Ruiz was on assignment for La Raza that day when the rally turned into a street war with the police. He and Joe Raso, 
a 33-year-old law student with an MA in psychology were following the action along Whittier Boulevard when they noticed a task force of sheriff's deputies preparing to assault the Silver Dollar Cafe. Their accounts of what happened there, along with Ruiz's photo, were published in La Raza three days after the sheriff's office said Salazar had been killed a mile away in Laguna Park by snipers and or errant gunfire. The La Raza spread was a bombshell. The photos weren't much individually, but together along with the Luis Rosso testimony, they showed that the cops were still lying when they come up with their second revised version of the Salazar's killing. It also verified the Restrepo Garcia Franco testimony, which had already shot down the original police version by establishing beyond any doubt that Ruben Salazar had been killed by a deputy sheriff in the Silver Dollar Cafe. They were certain of that, but no more. They were puzzled. They said when the cops appeared with guns and began threatening them, but they decided to leave anyways by the back door since the cops wouldn't let anybody out of the front. And that was when the shooting started. Less than 30 seconds after Garcia was photographed in front of that shotgun barrel on the sidewalk, the weakness in the Restrepo Garcia Franco testimony was so obvious that not even the cops could miss it. They knew nothing beyond what had happened inside the Silver Dollar at the time of Salazar's death. There was no way they could have known what was happening outside or why the cops started shooting. The explanation came almost instantly from the sheriff's office once again. From Lieutenant Hamilton, the police had received an anonymous report. He said that a man with a gun was inside the Silver Dollar Cafe. That was the extent of their problem. Or that was the extent of their probable cause. Their reason for doing what they did. These actions, according to Hamilton, consisted of sending several deputies to deal with the problem. And they did so by stationing themselves in front of the silver dollar and issuing a loud warning with a bullhorn calling all those inside to come out with their hands above their heads. There was no response. Hamilton said, so a deputy then fired two tear gas projectiles into the bar through the front door. At this point, two men and a woman fled out the back and one of the men who, or one of the men was relieved by waiting deputies of a 7.65 caliber pistol pistol he was not arrested not even detained and at that point a deputy fired two more tear gas projectiles through the front door of the place again there was no response and after a 15 minute wait on or after a 15 minute wait one of the braver deputies crept up and skillfully slammed the front door Without entering, Hamilton added, the only person who actually entered the bar, according to the police version, was the owner, Pete Hernandez, who showed up about a half an hour after the shooting and asked if he could go inside and get his rifle. Why not, said the cop. So Hernandez went in the back door and got his rifle out of the rear storeroom about 50 feet away from the from where Ruben Salazar's body 
lay in a fog of rancid CS gas. Then, for the next two hours, some two dozen sheriff's deputies cordoned off the street in front of the Silver Dollar's front door. This naturally attracted a crowd of curious Chicanos, not all of them friendly, and one, an 18-year-old girl, was shot in the leg with the same kind of tear gas bazooka that had blown Ruben Salasada's head apart. This is a fascinating tale and perhaps the most interesting thing about it that makes no sense at all. Not even to a person willing to accept it as absolute truth, but who could possibly believe it here in the middle of a terrible riot, riot in a hostile ghetto with a Chicano population of more than a million, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department had put every available man on the streets in a vain attempt to control the mass looting and arson by angry mobs, but somehow with the riots still running in high gear, at least a dozen deputies from the elite special Enforcement Bureau Reed TAC squad are instantly available in response to an anonymous report that a man with a gun is holed up for some reason in an otherwise quiet cafe more than 10 blocks away from the vortex of the actual rioting. They swoop down on the place and comfort several men trying to leave. They threaten to kill these men but make no attempt to either arrest or search them and force them all back inside then they use a bullhorn to warn everybody inside to come out with their hands up and then almost instantly after giving the warning they fire through the open front door of the place and from a distance of no more than 10 feet two high power tear gas projectiles designed for use against barricaded criminals and capable of piercing a one inch pine board at 300 feet then when a man carrying an automatic pistol tries to flee out the back door they take his gun and tell him to get lost Finally, after firing two more gas bombs through the front door, they seal the place up without ever entering it and stand around outside for the next two hours blocking a main boulevard and attracting a large crowd. After two hours of this madness, they hear a rumor again from an anonymous source that there might be an injured man inside the bar they sealed off two hours ago. So they break down the door and find the body of an eminent journalist, the only Chicano in East L.A., according to Acosta, that the cops were really afraid of. Incredible as it seems, the sheriff decided to stick with this story, despite a growing body of eyewitness accounts that contradict the police version of probable cause. The police say they went to the Silver Dollar Cafe to arrest that man with a gun but eight days after the killing they were still trying to locate the source of this fatal tip
Two weeks later at the coroner's inquest, the sheriff's key witness on this critical point mysteriously appeared. He was a 50-year-old man named Manuel Lopez who claimed all credit for the tip with his tale of having seen two armored men, one with a revolver and one carrying a rifle in the port arms position, go into the silver dollar shortly before Salazar was killed. Lopez quickly mentioned, motioned to the sheriff officers stationed nearby, he said, and they responded by parking a patrol car directly across the six-lane boulevard from the Silver Dollar's front door. Then using a loud bullhorn, the deputies gave two distinct warnings for everybody in the bar to throw out their weapons and come out with their hands over their heads. Then after five or ten minutes, Wait, Lopez said three rounds of tear gas were fired at the bar with one projectile <clears throat> glancing off the front doorway at two whooshing through a black curtain that was hanging a couple of feet back from the open doorway. It was too dark to see what was happening inside the bar, Lopez added. By his own admissions at the inquest, Lopez behavior on the afternoon of Saturday, August the 29th, was somehow singular when the riot broke out and the mobs began looting and burning. Mr. Lopez took off his shirt, donned a fluorescent red hunting vest, and stationed himself in the middle of Whittier Boulevard as a volunteer cop. He played the role with such zeal and fanatic energy that by nightfall he found himself famous at the height of the violence he was seen dragging a bus bench into the middle of the boulevard in order to block all traffic and divert it off to side streets. He also was also seen herding bystanders away from a burning furniture store and later when the riot action seemed over he was observing observed directing a group of sheriff's deputies towards the silver dollar cafe indeed there was no arguing with his claim two weeks later that had been right in the middle of things his testimony at the inquest sounded perfectly logical and so finely informed that it was hard to understand how such a prominent extroverted witness could possibly have escaped being quoted or at least mentioned by dozens of newsmen, investigators, and assorted tipsters with access <clears throat> to the Salazar story. Lopez' name had not even been mentioned by the sheriff's office, which could have saved itself a lot of unnecessary public grief by even hinting that they had a witness as valuable as Manuel Lopez. They had not been reluctant to display their other two friendly witnesses, neither of whom had seen any men with guns, but they both backed the Lopez version 
of the actual shooting sequence, or at least they backed it until the cops produced Lopez. Then the other two witnesses refused to testify at the coroner's inquest, and one of them admitted to his real name was David Ross Ritchie. Although the police had introduced him originally as Rick Ward, the Salazar inquest rumbled on for 16 days, attracting large crowds and live TV coverage from start to finish in a rare demonstration of nonprofit unity. All seven local TV stations formed a combine of sorts, assigning the coverage on a rotating basis so that each day's proceedings appeared on a different channel. The LA Times coverage by Paul Houston and Dave Smith was so complete and often so rife with personal intensity that the collected Smith Houston file reads like a finely detailed nonfiction novel read separately. The articles are merely good journalism, but as a document arranged chronologically, the file is more than the sum of its parts. The main theme seems to emerge almost reluctantly as part or as both reporters are driven to the obvious conclusion that the sheriff, along with his deputies, and all his official allies have been lying all along. This is never actually stated, but the evidence is overwhelming. A coroner's inquest is not a trial. Its purpose is to determine the circumstances surrounding a person's death, not who might have killed him or why. If the circumstances indicate foul play, the next step is up to the DA in California a coroner's jury can reach only two possible verdicts that the death was accidental or that the death was at the hands of another. And in this and the Salasada case, the sheriff and his allies needed a verdict of accidental. Anything else would leave the case open, not only to the possibility of a murder or manslaughter trial for the deputy, Tom Wilson, who finally admitted firing the death weapon, but also the threat of a million-dollar negligence lawsuit against the county by Salasada's widow. <clears throat> the verdict finally hinged on whether or not the jury could believe Wilson's testimony that he fired into the silver dollar at the ceiling in order to ricochet a tear gas shell into the rear of the bar and forced the armed stranger inside to come out the front door. But somehow, Ruben Salazar had managed to get his head in the way of that carefully aimed shell. Wilson had never been able to figure out, he said, what went wrong. Nor could he figure out how Raul Ruiz had managed to doctor those photographs that made it look like he and at least one other deputy were aiming their weapons straight into the silver dollar, pointing them directly at people's heads. Ruiz had no trouble explaining it. His testimony at the inquest was no different than the story he had told me just a few days after the murder, and when the inquest was over, there was nothing in the 2,025 pages of testimony from 61 witnesses and 204 exhibits to cast any serious doubt on the Chicano eyewitness report that Ruiz wrote for La Raza. 
when the sheriff was still maintaining that Salazar had been killed by errant gunfire during the violence at Laguna Park. The inquest ended with the split verdict. Smith's lead paragraph in the October 6th Times read like an obituary. Monday, the inquest into the death of newsman Ruben Salazar ended the 16-day inquiry by far the longest and costliest such affair in country history concluded with the verdict that confuses many, satisfies few, and means little. The coroner's jury came up with two verdicts. Death was at the hands of another person, four jurors, and death was by accident, three jurors. Thus, inquest might appear to be a waste of time. A week later, District Attorney Evel Younger, a staunch law and order man, announced that he had reviewed the case and decided that no criminal charges is justified. Despite the unsettling fact, two of the three jurors who had voted for the death by accident verdict were now saying they had made a mistake. But by that time, nobody really gave a damn. The Chicano community had lost faith in the inquest about midway through the second day, and all the rest of the testimony only reinforced their anger at what most considered an evil whitewash. When the DA announced that no charges would be filed against Wilson, several of more moderate Chicano spokesmen called for a federal investigation, the militants called for an uprising and the cops said nothing at all. There was one crucial question, however, that the inquest settled beyond any reasonable doubt. Ruben Salazar couldn't possibly have been the victim of a conscious high-level cop conspiracy to get rid of him by staging an accidental death. The incredible tale of half-mad stupidity and dangerous incompetence on every level of the law enforcement establishment was perhaps the most valuable thing to come out of the inquest. Nobody who had heard that testimony could believe that the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department is capable of pulling off a delicate job like killing a newsman on purpose. Their handling of the Salasadas case from the day of his death all the way to the end of the inquest raised serious doubts about the wisdom of allowing cops to walk around loose on the street. A geek who can't hit a 20-foot wide ceiling is not what you need these days to pull off a nice, clean, first-degree murder. But premeditation is only necessary to a charge of first-degree murder. The Salazar killing was a second-degree job in the terms of Section 187 of the California Penal Code. And in the political context of East Los Angeles in 1970, Ruben Salazar was killed unlawfully and with malice aforethought. These are treacherous concepts, no doubt, 
There are courts in this country where it might be argued successfully that a cop has a lawful right to fire a deadly tear gas bazooka point blank into the crowd of innocent people on the basis of some unfounded suspicion that one of them might be armed. It might also be argued that this kind of crazed and murderous assault can be accomplished without malice aforethought. Maybe so, maybe Ruben Salazar's death can be legally dismissed as a police accident or as a result of official negligence, most middle-class white-dominated juries would probably accept the idea why. After all, would a clean-cut young police officer deliberately kill an innocent bystander? Not even Ruben Salazar, 10 seconds before his death, could believe that he was about to have his head blown off by a cop for no reason at all. When Gustavo Garcia warned him that the cops outside were about to shoot, Salazar said, that's impossible. We're not doing anything. Then he stood up and caught a tear gas bomb in his left temple. The malignant reality of Ruben Salazar's death is that he was murdered by angry cops for no reason at all and that the L.A. Sheriff's Department was and still is prepared to defend that murder on grounds that it was entirely justified. Salazar was killed they say because he happened to be in a bar where police thought there was also a man with a gun. They gave him a chance, they say, by means of a bullhorn warning. And when he didn't come out with his hands up, they had no choice but to fire a tear gas bazooka into the bar. And his head got in the way. Tough luck. But that was... But what was he doing in that place anyways? Lounging around a noisy Chicano bar in the middle of a communist riot. What the cops are saying is that Salazar got what he deserved. A lot of reasons, but mainly because he happened to be in their way when they had to do their duty. His death was unfortunate, but if they had to do it all over again, they wouldn't change a note. This is the point they want to make. It's a logical variation on the standard Mitchell Agnew theme. Don't fuck around, boy. And if you want to hang around the people who do, don't be surprised when the bill comes due. Whistling in through the curtains of some darkened barroom on a sunny afternoon. When the cops decide, decide to make an example of somebody. The night before I left town, I stopped by Acosta's place with the Guillermo Restrepo. I had been there earlier, but the air was extremely heavy, as always. On stories like this, some of the troops were getting nervous about the stranger hanging around. I was standing in the kitchen watching Frank put some tacos together and wondering when he was going to start waving the butcher knife in my face and yelling about the time I maced him on my porch in Colorado that had been six months earlier at the end of a very long night during which we had all consumed a large quantity of cactus products and when he started waving his hatchet around 
I figured Mace was the only answer, which turned him to jelly for about 45 minutes. And when he finally came around, he said, if I ever see you in East Los Angeles, man, you're going to wish you never heard the word Mace because I'm going to carve it all over your fucking body. So I was not entirely at ease watching Frank chop hamburger on a meat block in the middle of East L.A. He hadn't mentioned the mace, not yet, but I knew we would get to it sooner or later. And I'm sure we would have accepted suddenly out in the living room. Some geek was screaming, what the hell is this goddamn gabacho pig rider doing here? Are we fucking crazy to be letting him hear all this shit? Jesus, he's heard enough to put every one of us away for five years. Longer than that, I thought. And at that point, I stopped worrying about Frank. A firestorm was brewing in the main room between me and the door. So I decided it was about time to drift around the corner and meet Restrepo at the Carioca. Frank gave me a big smile as I left. A man... A police say preyed on elderly women was charged Tuesday with one count of murder and 12 of robbery. Frazier Dwayne Brown, 44, a 6 foot 2 inch, 230 pound former Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department was arraigned in the same hall of justice courtroom where he had once worked as a bailiff. Police had long been seeking a man who befriended elderly women at bus stops and later attacked and robbed them. Evidence against Brown included possessions taken from victims of strong arm robberies and found in his home. LA Times, March the 31st, 1971. Several hours later, he we came back. Guillermo wanted to talk to Oscar about putting pressure on KMX TV management to keep him Restrepo on the air. They want to get rid of me, he explained. They started the pressure the day after Ruben was killed. The next fucking day, we were sitting on the floor in the living room outside overhead, over Head the police helicopter was looping around the sky above Whittier Boulevard, sweeping the neighborhood with a giant searchlight beam that revealed nothing and served no purpose except to, to, to drive the Chicanos below into seething rage. Those sons of bitches, Acosta muttered, look at that goddamn thing. We had all gone out in the yard to stare up at the monster there was no way to ignore it the noise was bad enough but the probing searchlight was such an obvious outrageous harassment that it was hard to understand how even a cop could explain 
it away as anything but deliberate mockery and provocation. Now tell me, said Acosta, why are they doing a thing like this? Why? You think they don't know what the effect it has on us? They know, said Restrepo. He lit a cigarette as we went in back was we went back inside and he said I get about 15 telephone calls every day from the people who want to tell me stories about what the police have done to them. Terrible stories. I've been hearing them for a year and a half every goddamn day. And and the funny thing is I never used to believe these people. Not completely. I didn't think they were lying. Just exaggerating. He paused, glancing around the room, but nobody spoke. Restrepo is not entirely trusted in these quarters, he is part of the establishment, like his friend, Ruben Salazar, who bridged that gap the hard way. But ever since Ruben Restrepo continued, I believe these stories, they're true. I, release, I, I, I realize that now, but what can I do? He shrugged, nervously aware that he was taking to people who had made that discovery a long time ago. Just the other night, he said, I got a call from a man who said the cops killed his cousin in the Yale. He was a homosexual, a young Chicano, nobody, political, and the police report said he hung himself in his cell, suicide. So I checked it out, and man, it made me sick. This guy's body was all bruises, black and blue marks all over him and right across his forehead. He had a 16 he had 16 fresh stitches. The police report said he tried to escape, so they had to dominate him. They got him sold up at the hospital, but when they took him to Yale, the warden or Yaler or whatever they call that bastard wouldn't accept him because he was bleeding so bad. So they took him back to the hospital and got a doctor to sign some paper saying he was okay to be put in the Yale, but they had to carry him. And the next day, they took a picture of him hanging from the end of the top bunk with his own shirt tied around his neck. You believe that? Not me. But you tell me what I can do. Where do I go? Where do I look for the truth? What can I ask? The sheriff? Goddamn, I can't go on the air with a story about how the cops killed a guy in the Yale unless I know something for proof. Jesus Christ, we all know. But just to know is not enough. Hey, I'm going to go ahead and uh, stop right there. And I'm going to go ahead and pick up um, on the third episode of this uh, three-part series. Or this three-part um, episode for uh Ruben Salazar in the Chicano Moratorium. But um yeah I'm gonna go ahead and uh, bounce out because we're right at an hour and I'm gonna go ahead and wrap it up with the uh final uh part that's gonna start on uh page two fifty four. Uh but yeah. I'm gonna go ahead and bounce out to the next part. Peace out. Catch you here in just a second. Make sure that if you are listening to this, um, not as one segment, 
there is three parts to this. All right. Catch you in a minute. I'm out. Hey, so what's up, everybody? It's uh, Steve Garcia. You're tuned in to the Chicano Podcast, a.k.a. Chocast. And this is being brought to you by Steve Garcia and Chicano. And um, I am your host in this uh, three-part episode on the uh, past weekend. Uh, We're wrapping up the uh, weekend of the Chicano Moratorium uh, today being, uh, you know, the, the, the following week. Uh, so it was just basically this past weekend, um, the 30th on Saturday, I believe, um, was the date that the, uh, LA, August the 30th of 1970, uh, was the date that Ruben Salazar was killed, murdered by the LA Sheriff's Department, uh, with a, um, projectile from like a uh, bazooka uh, that was meant to shoot a tear gas uh, bomb or whatever into the uh, silver dollar uh, there in East Los Angeles on uh, Whittier uh, Boulevard. It basically blew uh, part of his head off. And, um, this article actually is an article from a guy named Hunter S. Thompson. Um, I've already probably uh, read the first 40 pages of this article. I think it was printed like the following year in 1971, um, in the Rolling Stone. And... I only have about 10 pages of this left, so I'm going to go ahead and proceed with the uh, reading of this um, article. So, it's in some book, or I'm not sure where they uh, printed this that I'm reading it from. But like I said, it was an article in the Rolling Stone. Um, And I'm probably going to be finished here in about 30 minutes. But let me go ahead and start reading where I left off. You understand that. You see why I never made that story on TV? Acosta nodded. As a lawyer, he understood perfectly that evidence is necessary on the air and in print, as well as in the courtroom. But Frank was not convinced he was sipping from a quart of sweet Key Largo wine, and in fact, he didn't even know who the Strepo was. Sorry, man, he said earlier, but I don't watch the news on TV. Acosta winced. He watches and reads everything, but most of the people around him think the news on the TV or radio or newspapers or wherever is just another rotten cabacho trick. 
just another bad show. Like the others, the news to them is pure propaganda paid for by the advertisers who pay the bills for that bullshit. They ask, who's behind it? Who indeed? Both sides seem convinced that the real enemy is a vicious conspiracy of some kind. The Anglo power structure keeps telling itself that the Mexican problem is really the work of a small organization of well-trained communist agitators working 25 hours a day to transform East L.A. into a wasteland of constant violence. Mobs of drug-crazed Chicanos prowling the streets at all times, terrorizing the merchants, hurling firebombs into banks, looting stores, sacking officer offices, and massing now and then armed with Chinese Sten pistols for all-out assaults on the local sheriff's fortress. A year ago, this grim version would have been a bad joke. The crude ravings of some paranoid, hysterical bircher. But things are different now. The mood of the barrio is changing so fast that not even the most militant of the young Chicano activists claim to know what's really happening. The only thing everybody agrees on is the mood is getting ugly. The level of tension is escalating. The direction of the drift is obvious. Even Governor Reagan is worried about it. He recently named Danny Villanueva a one-time kicking specialist for East for the Los Angeles Rams and now general manager of KMX TV as the governor's personal ambassador to the whole Chicano community. But as usual, Reagan's solution is part of the program. Villanueva is overwhelmingly despised by the very people Reagan says he's trying to reach. He is the classic vendido. Let's face it, says a Chicano journalist, not usually identified with the militants. Danny is a goddamn pig. Ruben Salazar told me that, you know, KMX used to be a good news station for Chicanos. Ruben was the one who did that. And Danny was afraid to interfere. But within 24 hours after Ruben was murdered, Villanueva started tearing up the news department. He wouldn't even let the Estrepo show films of the cop gassing people in Laguna Park the day after Ruben died. Now he's trying to get rid of the Estrepo, cut the balls off the news, and turn KMX TV back into a safe Tio Taco station. Shit. And he's getting away with it. The total castration of KMX TV would be a crippling blow to the movement. A major media voice can be an invaluable mobilizing tool, particularly in the vast urban sprawl of Los Angeles. All it takes is a sympathetic news director with enough leverage and personal integrity to deal with the news on his own terms. The man who hired Ruben Salazar Former station director Joe Rank considered him valuable enough to outbid the blue chip Los Angeles Times for the services of one of that paper's ranking stars. So nobody argued when Salazar demanded absolute independence for his KMX News operation. But with Salazar dead, the station's Anglo ownership moved swiftly to regain control of the Leaderless news operation. Guillermo Restrepo Salazar's 
heir apparent suddenly discovered that he had no leverage at all. He was muscled into a straight newscaster's role. He was no longer free to investigate any story that he felt was important. If the Chicano Moratorium Committee called a press conference to explain why they were organizing a mass rally against police brutality, for instance, for instance that Estirapo had to get permission to cover it. And Chicano activists soon learned that a two-minute feature on KMEX was crucial to the success of a mass rally because TV was the only way to reach a mass Chicano audience in a hurry. And no other TV station in L.A. was interested in any kind of Chicano news excerpt except riots. <clears throat> Losing Ruben was a goddamn disaster for the movement, Acosta said recently. He wasn't really with us, but at least he was interested. Hell, the truth is, I never really liked the guy. But he was the only journalist in L.A. with real influence who would come to a press conference in the barrio. That's the truth. Hell, the only way we can get those bastards to listen to us is by renting a fancy hotel lounge over there in West Hollywood or some bullshit place like that where they can feel comfortable and hold up our press conference there. With free coffee and snacks for the press. But even then about half of the shitheads won't even come unless we serve free booze too. Shit. Do you know what that costs? This was the tone of our conversation that night. When Guillermo and I went to went over to Oscar's pad for a beer. And some talk about politics. The place was unnaturally quiet. No music, no grass, no bad mouth. Bato local types hunkered down on the pallets in the front room. It was the first time I'd seen the place when it didn't look like a staging area for some kind of hellish confrontation that might erupt at any moment. But tonight, it was deadly quiet. The only interruption was a sudden pounding on the door and voices shouting, Hey man, open up. I got some brothers with me. Rudy hurried to the door and I peered out through the tiny eye window. Then he stepped back and shook his head emphatically. It's some guys from the project, he told Oscar. I know them, but they're all fucked up. God damn it, Acosta murdered. Acosta muttered. That's the last thing I need tonight. Get rid of them. Tell them I have to be in court tomorrow. Jesus, I have to get some sleep. Rudy and Frank went outside to deal with the brothers, and Oscar and Guillermo went back to politics while I listened, sensing a downhill drift on all fronts. Nothing was going right. The jury was still out on Corky's case, but Agosta was not optimistic. He was also expecting a decision on his grand jury challenge in the Biltmore 6 case. We'll probably lose that one too, he said. The bastards think they have us on the run now. They think we're demoralized. So they'll keep the pressure on. Keep pushing, he shrugged. And maybe they're right. Shit, I'm tired of arguing with them. How long do they expect me to keep coming down to their goddamn courthouse and begging for justice? 
I'm tired of that shit. We're all tired. He shook his head slowly, then ripped the pop top out of a Budweiser that Rudy brought in from the kitchen. This legal bullshit ain't making it, he went on. The way it looks now, I think we're just about finished with that game, you know? At the noon recess today, I had to keep a bunch of these goddamn Bato Locos from stomping the DA. Christ, that would fuck me for good. They'll send me to the goddamn pen for hiring thugs to assault the prosecutor. He shook his head again. Frankly, I think the whole thing is out of control. God only knows where it's heading, but I know it's going to be heavy. I think maybe the real shit is about to come down. There was no need to ask what he meant by heavy shit. The body is already plagued by sporadic fire bombings, explosions, shootings, and minor violence of all kinds, but the cops see nothing political in these incidents. Just before I left town, I talked on the phone with the lieutenant at the East L.A. Sheriff's Office. He was anxious to assure me that the area was totally pacified. You have to remember, he said, that this has always been a high crime area. We have a lot of trouble with teenage gangs, and it's getting worse. Now they're all running around with 22 rifles and handguns looking for fights with each other. I guess they could say they're sort of like the Blackstone Rangers in Chicago, except that our gangs are younger. But they're not into politics like the black gangs in Chicago, I asked. Are you kidding her, Pod? The only political thing the Blackstone Rangers ever did was con somebody out of federal grant for a lot, for a lot of money. I asked him about some of the stories I'd heard about the bombings, etc. But he quickly dismissed them as rumors. Then, during the next half hour of random talking about things that had happened in the past few weeks, he mentioned one dynamiting and a one dynamiting and a building burned down at East Los Angeles College and also the firebombing of a local vendido politician's real estate office. But they hit the wrong guy, the lieutenant said with a chuckle. They bombed another realtor who happened to have the same name as the guy they were after. Gamalo, I mumbled, lapsing into my dialect, but aside from all that, you people don't see real trouble brewing. What about these rallies? They keep turning into riots. It's always the same bunch of troublemakers, he explained. They take a crowd that's gathered for other reasons, and then they subvert it. But that last rally was called to protest police brutality, I said, and then it turned into a riot. I saw the films. 50 or 60 police cars lined up bumper to bumper on Whittier Boulevard. Deputies firing shotguns into the crowd. That was necessary, he replied. That mob was out of control. They attacked us. I know, I said. And let me tell you something else. He went on. That rally wasn't really about police brutality. The guy who organized it, Rosalio Munoz, told me he was just using that slogan to get people out of the park. Well, you know how they are, I said. Then I asked him if he could give me the names of any Chicano leaders I should talk to 
If I decided to write an article about the scene in East L.A., well, there's a congressman, Roy Ball, he said. And that real estate man I told you about, the one who got firebombed. Oh, no, he replied, the other guy, the one they intended to firebomb. Okay. I said, I'll write those names down, and I guess if I decide to look around the body, you guys could help me out, right? Is it safe to walk around out there with all these gangs running around shooting each other? No problem, he said. We'll even let you ride around in a radio car with some of the officers. I said, that would be just fine. What better way, after all, to get the inside story? Just spent a few days turning the body on a cop car, particularly right now with everyone, everything calm and peaceful. We see no evidence of any political tension, the lieutenant had told me. We have a great deal of community support, he chuckled, chuckled, and we also have a very active intelligence bureau. That's good, I said. Well, I have to hang up now or else I'll miss my plane. Oh, then you've decided to do the story? When will you be in town? I've been here for two weeks, I said. My plane leaves in 10 minutes, but I thought you said you were calling from San Francisco. He said, I did. I said, but I was lying. Click. It was definitely time to leave. The last loose end in the Salazar case had been knotted up that morning when the jury came back with the guilty verdict for Corky Gonzalez. He was sentenced to 40 days and 40 nights in the L.A. County Jail for possession of a loaded revolver on the day of Salazar's death. We'll appeal, said Acosta. But for political purposes... This case is finished. Nobody worried about Corky surviving 40 days in jail. We wanted to confront the Gabacho court system with the man the whole Chicano community knew was technically innocent. Then let them draw their own conclusions about the verdict. Hell, we never denied that somebody had a loaded pistol in the truck, but it wasn't Corky. He would he wouldn't dare carry a goddamn gun around with him. He's a leader. He doesn't have to carry a gun for the same goddamn reason Nixon doesn't. Acosta had not stressed that point in the courtroom for fear of alarming the jury and inflaming the gringo press, not to mention the cops. Why give them the same kind of flimsy excuse to shoot at Gonzalez that they already used to justify shooting Ruben Salazar? Corky merely shrugged, shrugged, at the verdict, at 42, he had spent half his life gouging justice out the man, and now he views the Anglo court system with the quiet sort of fatalistic humor that Acosta hasn't learned yet. But Oscar is getting there fast. The week of April Fool's Day, 1971, was a colossal bummer for him. A series of bad jolts and setbacks that seemed to confirm all his worst suspicions. Two days after Corky's conviction, Superior Court Judge Arthur Alarcón, a prominent Mexican-American jurist, rejected Acosta's carefully constructed motion to quash the Biltmore Six indictments because of subconscious institutional racism in the grand jury system. This effort had taken almost a year of hard work, much of it done by Chicano law students who reacted to the verdict with a bitterness matching Acosta's. Then later the same week, the Los Angeles Board of Supervisors voted to use public funds to pay 
all legal expenses for several policemen recently indicted for accidentally killing two Mexican nationals. A uh, case known in East LA as the murder of the Sanchez, the, San, the Sanchez brothers. And it was a case of mistaken identity. The cops explained they had somehow been given the wrong address of an apartment where they thought two Mexican fugitives were holed up. So they hammered on the door and shouted a warning to come out there with your hands over your head or we'll come in shooting. Nobody came out, so the cops went in shooting to kill. But how could they have, how could they have known that? They'd attack the wrong apartment. And how could they have known that neither one of the Sanchez brothers understood English? Even Mayor Sam Yordi and Police Chief Ed Davis admitted that the killings had been very unfortunately, but when the federal DA brought charges against the cops, both Yordi and Davis were publicly outraged. They both called press conferences and went on the air to denounce the indictments in language that strangely echoed the American Legion outcry when Lieutenant Callie was charged with murdering women and children at my lay lie at my LAI. The Yordi Davis tirades were so gross that a district court judge finally issued a gag order to keep them quiet until the cases comes to trial but they had already said enough to whip the whole body onto a rage at the idea that Chicano's tax dollars might be used to defend some mad dog cops who frankly admitted killing two Mexican nationals it sounded like a replay of the Salazar bullshit same style, same excuse, same result, but this time with different names and blood on a different floor. They'll put me in jail if I won't pay taxes, said young Chicano watching soccer game at the loyal local playground. Then they take my tax money and use it to, to defend some killer pig. Hell, what if they had come to my address by mistake? I'd be dead as hell right now. There was a lot of talk in the body about drawing some pig blood for a change of the supervisors actually voted to use tax funds to defend the accused cops. A few people actually called City Hall and mumbled anonymous threats in the name of the Chicano Liberation Front, but the supervisors hung tough. They voted on Thursday and by noon the news was out. The city would pick up the tab at 5.15 p.m. on Thursday afternoon. The Los Angeles City Hall was rocked by a dynamic blast. A bomb had been planted in one of the downstairs restrooms. Nobody was hurt and the damage was officially described as minor. About $5,000 worth, they said. Small potatoes compared to the bomb that blew a wall out of the district attorney's office last fall after Salazar died. When I called the sheriff's office to ask about the explosion, they said they couldn't talk about it. City Hall was out of their jurisdiction, but they were more than willing to talk when I asked if it was true that the bomb had been the work of the Chicano Liberation Front. Where'd you hear that? 
from the city news service? Yeah, it's true, he said. Some women called up and said it was done in memory of the Sanchez brothers by the Chicano Liberation Front. We've heard about those guys. What do you know about them? Nothing, I said. That's why I called the sheriff. I thought your intelligence network might know something. Sure they do, he said quickly. But all that information is confidential. This is printed by the Rolling Stone, number 81, April the 19th, or I'm sorry, April the 29th of 1971. Almost a year exactly after the death of Ruben Salazar. I'm not really going to do much dialogue on this other than this past weekend was the 50th anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium. And I'm sure that um, it is an event that takes place repeatedly, you know, just like a cycle. And um, I can only add that these police and the environment that we're living in today, um, looking at everything that's on the news, um, the movements, the protests, the marching, the marches, the NFL players, the basketball players, all of the sports figures taking knees. The talk of defunding the police, uh, the political ecosphere that we live in today, the amount of people that are starting to arm themselves and look like militias because of police brutality. Growing up, looking at things like the Rodney King beating, um, not only, I think, polarize these issues that we have in our communities, especially in a place like Los Angeles, and knowing the reputation of the Los Angeles Police Department, I think that there is a very troubling theme, in my opinion, as a Chicano. I know this story is attached to our people and our communities in a way that allows us to look back at history repeating itself and replaying itself um, I remember being a teenager when the Rodney King 
beatings took place. And until the advent of the video cameras, you know, people started carrying video cameras. I mean, now we've got them on our phones, but back then, somebody just happened to have a video camera, a handheld video camera, and that's how they caught that thing on tape. And I think that that's what's happening nowadays is we're just basically able to record these guys doing their dirt, and back then, we weren't able to do that, so it's changing a lot of the dynamics in which they want to continue to run the police state. So they want to still do it. They want to still have the authoritarian aggression on the people. And I think that if you can see that as a person or if you can see that as a Chicano or if you can see that they cage our people. You know, I don't know if you consider yourself better than somebody else that was born, you know, on the other side of the imaginary line. But those are our people that they're putting in cages. Those are our children. Those are our ancestral ties. You know, we're connected by blood, sangre. State, nation, country, you want to call 250, 300 years, 400, 500 years of colonial change, lines in the sand, balkanization of states and nations, oppression, and all these other forms of imperial colonialism. This media. That changes us to think that we're immigrants when we're not. In fact, the people calling us the immigrants are the real immigrants. I'm only saying all this is because we're having real issues. And I feel like it's only getting worse. And I feel like it's going to continue to become a bigger problem. I mean, we're looking at 50 years ago. There's still the same problems. And if they haven't gotten worse, you're looking at the rents go up over there on the West Coast. You can't even afford to live over there. It's like becoming like Hawaii, where they're just going to try to push everybody out. And the cops are mean in those areas. You know, they, 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 they put drugs in the community, guns in the community. You know, these are real issues that I just feel like we do need leadership. We do need uh, people thinking, reading, and talking about these issues. And I just feel it's important for you to go through listening through this entire um, article. That's cool. I commend you for it. Um, you know, it's something that I really didn't know. And I'm enlightening myself as well. I'm surrounding myself with other 
Chicanos that are politically uh, not just active, but interested in understanding the plight, if you will, of our people. Because it's our job to hand these stories to other people and also our critical or our critiques, our thoughts, our dissemination of all of this um, internal aggression and how we're supposed to deal with that. What is the best way to deal with that? And um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. I appreciate you tuning in to um, the podcast. And, um, you know, you can always send me an email. Chicano podcast at gmail.com. You can always follow me. Um, I think I did a TikTok. Uh, the other day, I think it's called Chicanet, and um, you can find me on Facebook, under our group, the Chicanos Who Think They Are Political Experts, um, just look that up, you'll find um, our group. We have a pretty solid group of people that, you know, talk about things like this, post things like this. The dialogue, the narratives are pretty much political. Everything is political. Um, But anyways, I'm going to go ahead and bounce out to the next episode. Appreciate you guys tuning in. And um, until the next episode, I have to watch you. Peace.